Please turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Why was Jesus long-expected? Because the Old Testament prophesied of his coming. And uh, Isaiah, in this 11th chapter, uh, has a prophecy about the branch, one of the Old Testament designations for the Messiah. starts off in uh, verse 1 and tells us where Messiah will come from. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Jesse was David's father. And the picture here is of a stump of a tree, and uh, suddenly a little shoot, a twig, a branch comes up and begins to grow. And so Jesus would be a descendant of Jesse's, or rather of David's, really. But David was a mighty king, and, and uh, to picture his lowly condition at the time of birth, born in a manger and so on, we have him uh, pictured as Jesse's offspring here. And... Uh, uh, just a little twig coming up. Notice uh, his qualifications in uh, verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In general, he will be equipped with the spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit. Uh, this coming one would be God become man, God and man, fully God, fully man. Isaiah in chapter 9, as we saw earlier in our studies in Isaiah, it said, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This child would be the Mighty God. He'd be God and man, but he'd be real man. And as man, he would need equipping to serve God, just as you and I in our human nature need the Spirit of God to equip us to serve God. And uh, the Spirit of God would be upon him and would make him, as man, of wisdom, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and true fear of the Lord, true reverence for God, and uh, true faith. Uh, that would be... The, the qualities that the Spirit of God would work in his human nature. Again, uh, notice uh, what his reign would be like in uh, verse 3. It says, uh, He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. As Phillips translates that, he won't judge by hearsay. Uh, rather, with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. Now, the poor and the meek speak of the downtrodden and the oppressed, but also speak of true believers. And uh, his reign would be one on behalf of the meek. And also he would deal with the wicked. In uh, verse 4, He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his, wick of his lips shall he slay the wicked. It will be characterized by fairness and righteousness, and by destruction for the wicked. There will be a change in nature that will accompany his reign. In uh, uh, the sixth verse, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. 
And the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead these ferocious beasts. And the cow and the bear shall feed together. Uh, their young ones shall lie down together, and the ox shall eat straw, or the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Normally, the lion eats the ox. Uh, here, the lion eats straw. What's it speaking of, this uh, change in nature? Uh, well, this is a beautiful picture of the peace that shall accompany Messiah's kingdom. When will that happen? It has happened. It is happening. It began at the first coming of Jesus Christ when God's kingdom was ushered in, a new phase of it. And with the coming of Christ, his death for our sins, his resurrection, his ascension on high, the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, and then uh, the gospel going out into all the world. And with that came peace, peace between God and man as Men gave their hearts to Christ, surrendered their wills in true repentance, and the enmity between God and them was removed. Uh, peace between man and man. Uh, when we get right with God, we get right with our fellow man. Uh, we ask his forgiveness. Uh, we begin to be able to love him with a new kind of love. Uh, this kind of change in human nature is what's being pictured here. Uh, the change in these uh, ferocious beasts. Jesus said, if any man, or Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Jesus said to the disciples, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Those wolves were people who would eat them alive in many cases. But many of those wolves became lambs as they went out with the gospel. John Calvin, Matthew Henry, uh, this is the way they interpret it. Robert Moffat was a well-known missionary from Scotland to South Africa. And when he arrived in South Africa, he heard of a notorious uh, desperado, Africana, who lived near Cape Town in a tribe. The governor had placed a bounty on his head, $500, dead or alive. When Robert Moffat announced that he was going to that tribe to evangelize that tribe, they said, Africana will drink out of your skull. But trusting in the Lord, Robert Moffat went. And his first convert was Africana. Africana's wolf-like nature was changed, and not too long thereafter, he accompanied Robert Moffat back to Cape Town. And the governor looked at this changed man, and he said, this is a miracle. This is the eighth wonder of the world. Amen. Some of us are the ninth, tenth, and eleventh, right? Uh, Luis Palau, who is uh, called the Billy Graham of South America and who has preached for us on occasion, uh, was holding a crusade in Peru. A woman there, a terrorist who had killed twelve policemen, decided to kill Luis Palau. She was incensed at his coming with this gospel crusade. She went to the meeting to figure out the best way to assassinate him. But as she sat there, she made the mistake of listening to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
She came under conviction. Her wolf-like nature was changed. Luis Palau knew nothing of this until ten years later when he met her for the first time. Uh, by then, she had assisted in starting five churches and had founded an orphanage that at that time had 1,000 orphans in the orphanage. That's the kind of transformation that is being pictured in this amazing language here. Uh, and yet, and so as we say, it has present fulfillment. But its ultimate and complete fulfillment will take place in the new heavens and new earth, which will be ushered in when Christ returns. This present earth will be destroyed, will pass away. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. If you look a little further on in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 65, the next to last chapter, verse 17, you notice that we have that new heavens and new earth prophesied, that there will be such. It says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. Then he goes on to describe conditions there. Look at verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So while it has a present fulfillment, its ultimate fulfillment and perfect fulfillment will be in that new heavens and new earth. Now, <clears throat> we have... Uh, the description of his reign, the righteousness of it, the change of nature that accompanies it. And the cause of this, well, the ultimate fulfillment in that new heavens and new earth will involve a change in nature, creation, the animal kingdom, very similar to the language that's used here, apparently. As E.J. Young points out in his commentary on Isaiah, I think the finest commentary written, it says, what's the point of all the detailed language about the animals, the lion eating straw like the ox, if there's not something like that in view? True, the language is picturing figuratively the change in human nature, but a change in the animal kingdom per se in this new heavens and new earth. And uh, over in Romans chapter 8, and he refers us to Romans 8, verses 19 to 22, you find where Paul says that the curse that was placed on the animal creation, the world in general, because of Adam's sin will be removed at that time in that new heavens and new earth. Uh, it says that all of creation is subject to futility today, but that all of creation is standing on tiptoe, to use Philip's translation, looking forward to this glorious liberty of the children of God that's going to take place when we'll be totally free, free of all sin, free of all bondage in any sense, free of any sickness or disease in that new heavens and new earth, all of creation is going to enter into that with us. For the creation itself was subjected to bondage because of man's sin, says Paul. But they too will enter into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. I'm looking forward to that. I mean, I'm excited about the change that's taken place 
in people today and in me. But isn't it great to be part of something that is going to be that wonderful? If I wasn't a Presbyterian, I'd just shout about it. But anyway. <clears throat> now, the uh, notice the other events. Well, no, the cause. The cause of all of this taking place, of course, will be his reign. But there's another cause mentioned in verse 9 of Isaiah 11, the last part. But verse 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What brings about this change in people's lives? The knowledge of the Lord. Where do you get the knowledge of the Lord? From the Scriptures and the Gospel. The good news of who Jesus was and what he did. And as that goes out, why this change takes place. Earlier in Isaiah, in chapter 2 of Isaiah, we saw where it said that in the latter days, the mountain of the Lord's house, that's Mount Zion, would be exalted among the mountains, and all nations would flow to it. And uh, the word of the Lord would go out from Mount Zion. Well, that's what produces this movement. Mount Zion is the true church. Wherever the church is, God's true church, and the word goes out. Lives are changed. The knowledge of the Lord is what affects this in people's lives. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. My life was changed 32 years ago. Good grief. 32 years ago, a, a change took place in me when I understood what the Bible taught about Jesus Christ having paid in full for my sins and salvation being a sheer gift, not something I could earn or deserve. And if I would surrender my will to a master and trust a Savior that I would be forgiven. That was good news to this sinner. And I trusted him. And I surrendered. And a change took place, a progressive, gradual change. It wasn't just night to day, but it was real. And it's lasted. And it comes through the knowledge of the Lord. The earth will be filled. The earth is being filled as the word is going out, but half the world lies in darkness. The dark half of the world. That's why we send missionaries. That's why we're praying that God would raise up 35 people from our congregation this year to go into full-time ministry here or abroad. Maybe God's calling you to the dark half of the world. Certainly He's calling us to share that faith right where we are, to learn to lead people to Christ and to disciple Now, notice other events that will accompany his coming. In verse 10, In that day, when he comes, there will be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people. This, this branch that grows up out of David, out of Jesse and David, this branch will become a mighty tree and will be a standard, an ensign to the nations. And uh, to it shall the Gentiles seek. The Gentiles will respond to the gospel. They will enlist under the banner of this Savior. And prior to Messiah's coming, the branches coming, this was a Jewish thing. There were a few Gentiles saved, but basically the kingdom of God was within the Jewish people. Now it's gone into all the world. And here we are 2,000 years later. The translation of that 
this response of the Gentiles, uh, as you have it quoted in the New Testament. Paul quotes this verse in the New Testament. Here's the way he quotes it. He says, And again Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and in him shall the Gentiles trust. They'll put their faith in this branch, Jesus Christ. The uh, glorious resting place. Notice it says, To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest or his resting place is a better translation. Berkeley translates it that way. Shall be glorious. What is what is Christ's resting place? The church. The church is Christ's resting place. Or Zion, Psalm 132. For the Lord, having chosen Zion and desired it for his habitation, hath said, This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell. And he makes it glorious as he rests there. His presence and the bringing in of the Gentiles makes his church glorious, powerful. There's a church in Washington where former president used to worship fairly often, and one day the secretary answered the phone. Somebody said, is the president going to be there this Sunday? She said, I don't know, but the Lord is. <laughs> Amen. Uh, the restoration not only there are the drawing not only of the Gentiles, but also the recovery of the remnant of the Jews. What will happen to the Jews when the branch comes? Verse 11. It shall come to pass that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Patros, so on. Verse 12. He shall set up an ensign for the nations, the Gentiles, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel will be scattered throughout the world and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now, that hadn't happened yet. That will happen. Before Christ returns, before the new heavens and new earth, you're going to see a mass turning of Jewish people around the world. You see a trickle now, but you'll see a flood one day where they turn and receive Jesus Christ and become a part of his church. The restoration of unity among the people of God. Verse 13 uh, says that Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. In Isaiah's day, the people of God were divided. You had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim and Judah. But when Messiah comes, the people of God will be one people. They'll be united. You say, well, we're not. We have Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists. That's right. But in all of those different bodies, those who believe in Jesus Christ, who surrender to him, who trust in him, are one people. One Catholic church. One universal church. Now, <clears throat> the resulting conquest of the enemies of the people of God, verse 14, they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west, and they shall spoil them of the east together. Lay their hand upon Edom and Moab. This church, now united, now glorious because of the branch dwelling there and making his resting place there, will have power and will reach out and will grab the former enemies of the people of God and fly upon them and conquer them as they yield their wills to Jesus Christ. The conversion, 
that will take place is being pictured there as the church engages in evangelism, as the church tells the old, old story of Jesus and his love. It will be powerful, and it will conquer uh, those former uh, enemies who opposed their master. God will remove obstacles in the process. Verse 15, the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, uh, like he removed obstacles from the Exodus and rolled back the sea, the Red Sea. So he will work with his church to enable them to disciple the nations, to go into all the world with the gospel of Christ. What should we, uh, what should our attitude be when we read something like this? Well, uh, Isaiah tells us as he goes on in chapter 12 with the same theme, verse 1, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Well, we should start off by praising him, because we have experienced that. We're part of this. We've experienced the peace, and our wolf-like nature has been changed. Uh, we should praise him, be thankful. And uh, uh, we should be fearless. Verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Be fearless, like Robert Moffat was when he went into that tribe where Africanic was. Be fearless and tackle those strongholds for Christ with his gospel. Uh, be prayerful in uh, verse 4. In that day you shall say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name. God says, call upon me, and I will show you great and mighty things that you know not. Be prayerful. Be evangelistic. In verse 4, declare his doings among the people. Make mention that his name is exalted. Take his doings and declare them around the world. Be evangelistic. Reach out with the gospel. And be excited. Verse 6, cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion. Are you a member of God's true church, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Then be excited. Cry out and shout. Man, you're part of this thing, this great revolution. Great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Praise the Lord. I shout for Auburn. You shout for Auburn? I shout for Auburn. Well, I ought to shout for the Lord, shouldn't I? Every morning when I get up, I ought to say, Hallelujah! And about an hour later, I ought to say, Praise the Lord! Man alive, I ought to be excited about this. I am excited about it. I hope you're excited about it. It's the most important thing in the world. Nothing else matters. You excited when you make a sale? How about when you lead someone to Christ and sell the gospel and give it away, really? And his life is changed. Shouldn't that excite you? I'll tell you what, when you go to heaven, leading one person to Christ will mean more to you the fact that there's one other person there because you shared the gospel. That'll mean more to you than anything else you did in life. Boy, how we need to get our priorities straight and uh, be excited and understand the implications. If you're not a Christian, of course, or you suspect you're not, there's way too much of that old wolf-like nature about you. You can become a lamb. You can be changed. You can have an incredible transformation take place in your life. Verse 3, Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. 
Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He is the well of salvation. And if you come and put your trust in him and surrender your will to him, Lord, I'm a wolf. I need to be changed. I need forgiveness, and I want that joy that you alone can give. He'll do it. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, are you equipped to share your faith, and are you sharing it? Are you excited about the change that Christ is making? And are you a part of this? If so, uh, uh, praise the Lord. If not, get equipped to share and to uh, lead others to him. To give away what's been given to you. If you're not a Christian, but you want Christ to change you, you're willing for him to make changes. You believe his claims. Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, I am the wolf. I need to become the lamb. Lord, I come to you as the well of salvation, and I'm thirsty. I put my trust in you to forgive this sinner on the basis of your death, and I surrender to you. Come into my life. Amen.